Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services. We hope you enjoy. Amen, amen. All right, you guys may be seated. Well, I heard Carly, we're in what book of the Bible? The book of Romans, and so grab your Bible, go with me to Romans chapter 13. We are uh, picking back up after pausing and stopping for a while. If you were here for the last seven or so weeks, we have been in a dating series, and now we are picking back up on the book of Romans. All right, so today we are in uh, week 33 of our study through the book of Romans. Can anyone tell me how many verses are in the book of Romans? I've said it now for 33 weeks. Not 700. A lot. That's the answer. Cool. Open your Bibles. Now, 430, it's an incredible book. Just to get us all on the same page, I need to do some recap because we've been out of the book of Romans for a little while now, seven or so weeks. Um, And so uh, here are some what commentators have said about the book of Romans. Roman is the greatest book in the Bible. Another one says, Roman stands among the most important pieces of literature in the intellectual history of man. Another says, it's safe to say that Romans is probably the most powerful human document ever written. Why? Well, that's because the book of Romans really is the Christian manifesto of freedom. The book details of how God, through Jesus Christ, has set his people free and then gives them his Holy Spirit to embolden and empower them to live a different life. Um, the truth is, and one of the themes and meta narratives of the book of Romans, which we have discovered for a handful of weeks now, is that we either by default will live hell up, but by the power of God's Spirit, we can live heaven down. Our default, though, let's be real, is to invite chaos into the world, right? You ever seen those pictures of like, um, it's always like these like uh, doomsday scenarios, like what New York City would look like if not a person was there for seven years, and immediately like invasive species and plants and animals immediately take over the city. And the same is kind of true with the world around us, right? Like we are constantly moving towards chaos. The truth is we live chaos up, hell up. But we as Christians, empowered by God's Spirit, have the capacity to live heaven down, an entirely different type of life. Now, when Paul wrote the book of Romans, he had been a preacher for about 20 or so years, and he's had a long walk with Jesus, and he's learned a lot about Jesus and about theology and all that. And so during the authorship of this letter, which most scholars kind of believe between 55 AD and about 58 or so AD, um, his life at this specific time was being threatened, so he's unsure if he was ever actually going to be able to make it to Rome. And so, in light of that reality, he decided he was going to pen the book of Romans as if he was never actually going to make it to the Romans and the Roman churches to teach the early Christians there about who Christ and who Jesus was. So he wrote them a letter so comprehensive that, that if the fact that, um, that Paul could never, if he could never preach there, they would still understand really the deep theological meanings of who Jesus was and salvation and really all this type of stuff, which means that the letter of Romans is different than all the other type of epistles and letters that Paul had wrote in the New Testament, which there's a lot of them, if you have known um, how many he's written, 13 or so. And so uh, the reason that Romans is different, he doesn't deal so much with the problems um, in specific churches. Like we did a study, I don't know, two or three years ago, I don't remember when it was, through the book of Galatians. And there he's writing a specific thing to the Judaizers. You don't need to know that, but He's writing a specific um, uh, letter to a church and what's specifically going on in the church. However, in the book of Romans, he's not dealing about the problems, but rather the great problem solver, that person being God and his redemptive plan and restoration for mankind. And so that means that Paul spends more time talking about theology in the book of Romans than any other book. Theos, God, ology, the study of, talking about who God is, what his nature is like. Big concepts like hell, heaven, salvation, all this type of stuff. And so the theme of Romans 
please tell me, someone can tell me the theme of Romans, the righteousness of God, right? Yeah, the righteousness of God is the theme of Romans, and that is deep theology there, right? How you, messed up, flawed, broken person like me, can get right with a perfect, holy, and just God. That is the purpose of the book of Romans, that wherever you take it, you could give somebody the book of Romans, just the 16 chapters, and they would be, it, would, it would have the adequate resources and revelation from God for these people to recognize their sin, choose Jesus Christ as the only Savior, and place their faith in him. And so the book of Romans is of utmost important. And so i got to be honest, I've so much enjoyed going through the book of Romans with you, and I've probably learned, I've learned so much journeying through the book of Romans now for 33 weeks. But what I want you to do, grab a Bible, go with me to Romans chapter 13 is where we are today. And... Uh, we're going to learn a lot together. Now, as you flip through your Bibles to get to Romans chapter 13, if you don't have a Bible, but we can give you one, by the way, on that table, or just follow on the Sky Bible. But um, our section today, as you look at it, it says submission to the authorities, or to authority. Um, and we're only going to be covering seven verses today. I'm going to do it quickly, though, to get you guys in, into some groups. And the context, really, which this is all written in, is to tell followers of Christ that whatever country they may find themselves in, that the governing authorities that we are under are placed by, by God there for a purpose. And the purpose could be really this. Um, God could create a governmental structure where we have certain um, uh, authorities and principalities um, to bless the nation and their citizens or to punish the nation and their citizens, right? That's really the purpose, to bless or to punish, to correct. Now, we, if you know your Bibles, you'll know a lot of the Old Testament that God would allow his people to be enslaved elsewhere. If you know the story of Moses, it was Egypt. And then the story of Daniel, it was, uh, it was Babylon, right, under King Nebuchadnezzar. And so God would allow certain nations to conquer his people for an express purpose of punishment and correction because God loves, and if we love, we have to punish, we have to correct uh, certain behaviors that are destructive. And so the idea here is that gover the governments of the world have been appointed by God to serve a purpose in his plan. Now, I'm just going to be upfront with you. Uh, it's probably terrible for me to say as a pastor. I don't know if I like these verses that much, you know? Now, here's what I mean by that. I read this, and I've been studying it this last week, and I just go like, Oh, like everything in me wants to rebel against what is written in God's text. It doesn't make you feel good. Here's the number one thing you need to know about when you're, reading, when you're hearing a pastor teach or when you're reading the Bible. Your feelings don't matter. My feelings don't matter. It's what did God say in his word, in his revealed word. I need to conform to that, not have his word conform to me, right? But I've done a little bit of a deep dive this last week and some commentaries and read the Greek and some other things. I kind of garnered a greater understanding of what Paul's teaching here and why it's of so much importance. So here's really the, the question that we're going to be journeying through today. How can a believer operate in a secular world when it requires obedience to a secular government? It's the framework for our head. Let me give you the question again. How can a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's you in this room, operate in a secular world when it requires obedience to now a secular government? Now, I think that uh, if we would just, I think we could agree that it seems that our government officials and the policies, whether Republican or Democrat, they're pushing forward that we are rapidly moving away from what we would have been called a, quote, a Christian nation. We are a post-secular Christian nation now. We are no longer a Christian nation by any stretch of the imagination, right? And so it may be more difficult for us now to be obedient to this government that we're in than our parents and their parents and their parents, right? And so I think Romans 13 is of utmost importance for us to read in, in, in the century and the time that we're in today. Now, especially when you also kind of layer in another reality to this, that is that believers, we have something called in Scripture, dual citizenship. Is anyone a dual citizen of America and somewhere else? Anyone? 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 Cool. Um, Evan? Did you, where? where? Italy. Italy. What? You do not look Italian, bro, but I'm Italian, but cool. Uh, anyone else? 
Cool. So uh, in the Bible, it gives us the framework to give us the idea that we are dual citizens. We are citizens of earth, and it's governing authorities and bodies there, but rather also citizens of heaven and the governing authority that is God, and whatever hierarchy that God has placed in heaven that we will now submit to or be, in, be a part of. Now, because, let's say, we have two passports, one blue from the United States of America and, like, I don't know, one white from heaven. I don't know how this works, but uh, we have two passports. God, what we need to figure out is what is God requiring of us as we live primarily under earthly governing bodies, right? Now, let me also kind of, before we hop into Romans chapter 13, give you a little bit of an overarching idea of the government authorities of Jesus's and Paul's day. Now, the government, governmental structure, a framework um, of ancient Rome was more like China than it is modern day America, right? It was not a democracy, but an autocracy. Autocracy is where the power is centralized in one individual. What separates an autocracy from monarchy, by the way, like in England, is that it's passed down through heritage or genetic lineage. Um, a, uh, um, a 20th century idea of a monarchy would be um, Adolf Hitler ruling the chancellor of Germany, right? A one-man one person with absolute unilateral authority to kill 9 to 12 million people, right? Um, even Joseph Stalin in, in, in Russia, that would be another great example of that, right? But anyways... Um, Ancient Rome, it started as a republic. You probably heard they had a senate and, some, and, and things like that. Much of our modern um, structure of America today comes from ancient um, Rome. Now, um, yeah, so our blueprint's really similar um, until later on, and then Caesar gets wild. We'll talk about that in a second. Now, here's another thing that you need to know about the kind of governmental structure of Jesus's and Paul's day. Um, later into Caesar's reign, uh, he required eventually every citizen to worship him as God, which, by the way... All ungodly kingdoms eventually blend politics and, uh, and religion, and it normally begins with ethics, which is, you can actually begin to see that happening in our country today, and we talked when we started through the book of Daniel all about that, right? Um, and if you read the book of Revelation, you'll learn that there is some antichrist, the beast, the harlot, um, that, uh, that blend politics and religion, and then that the world will worship this one individual as God, and he will be the leader of the governmental structure of the world, uniting and rebelling against the one true king of heaven, Jesus. But that's a whole other series. So um, another thing you need to know about is uh, everyone had to publicly swear to allegiance uh, to Caesar as Lord, and after which, it's interesting enough, they were given a little plaque that said that they were a loyal and a good citizen. In juxtaposition, you can kind of think that that's kind of what the church does with Jesus Christ, right? You get baptized, you swear allegiance publicly to Jesus Christ, and then you get a little plaque at some church, you get a photo of you getting baptized or whatever it is, and you, normally it's like you coming right out of the water, and it's not the most attractive photo, but they're great. And um, in fact, I asked the people to get like the worst ones possible. No, I'm just kidding, but um, they're hilarious photos. And uh, that's kind of what believers do, right? You get a little plaque saying you, you've sworn your allegiance to Jesus Christ. Um, I remember years ago, I got the opportunity to do the footsteps of Paul's tour, which means I got to go to Turkey, I got to go to Greece, and I got to go to Rome, and all the places that Paul had wrote their, his letters to. And I think there's one photo that I want to show you of a very interesting place, Carly or Herbert's back there. Faith is you. Um, okay, so you can't see the uh, you can't see that plaque back there, um, but it, it actually says Bema. This is um, in a place called Corinth, which is about fifty miles west of Athens. You can probably pick Athens on a map in Greece, right? And uh, this is this really interesting thing where uh, our tour guide brought us here, and he brought us to the platform that's up there. And there would be a governing body, maybe a governor or an, some official that would stand on that platform. And this little thing down here, to my left, your right. Um, actually used to be a seat, and it would be something they either sat on or uh, bowed over, and it was called the Bema seat. If you know the book of Revelation, it's talking about that one day mankind will stand before the the judgment seat of God. Bema means judgment, 
And what was really fascinating and really awestruck in, in, in just thinking about what happened in this exact location is people here would have to swear allegiance to Caesar as Lord. And so you're, it's kind of an eerie moment, I'm not going to lie, because the tour guide said, well, right where you're standing, there had been thousands of men, women, and children who would not swear allegiance to Caesar as Lord because their Lord was Jesus Christ. And right here, there would be an executioner that would stand on the right-hand side of this, have a sword, and if they would not swear allegiance, they would be beheaded. And it's just eerie to stand in this location of these men, women, and children of, of, of heroes of faith. I mean, can you, like, I was just trying to think, like, Imagine that you're in a line, and you're a follower of Jesus, and mom and dad are in front of you, or a cousin, or just friend, or just people, and, and they say, do you swear allegiance to Caesar? And you say, no, my allegiance is to Jesus and Jesus alone. And then they would say, bow, and then they would chop your head off, and then drag your body away, and then keep going, and then you're next. It's kind of this crazy reality, this judgment, the Bema seat. And so it was in Jesus' and Paul's day a mandate that Roman citizens would have to swear allegiance to Caesar. And so you can see that the, the, the contrast in the, the, as we talk about government and Christians in a moment, this is, the, this is the society that Paul and Jesus grew up and lived under. Now, a little history you may or may not know is that ancient Israel had been conquered and was ruled by Rome. And to rule Israel, Rome uh, positioned as a governor, a, um, it's where we get our word governor today, by the way, but was a Roman official who was placed there to really oversee the affairs of the place that they had conquered. Now, there were some made really famous in the Bible, if you know the story of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, a man named Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea at the time. Now, Rome also allowed places they had conquered to maintain a, a really a pseudo, an artificial type of government um, that had its own officials, its own king, as long as it bowed down to the real king, which was Caesar at the time when necessary. In fact, Jesus' birth narrative, if you know anything of Luke chapter 2, teaches us the power that this government and this king had. When Jesus was born... Israel's king was a man named King Herod. He was quoted, King Hell of the Jews was his, was his title. And he made a law that every male child under the age of two was to be killed because he was threatened by the baby king, Jesus. And what's wild about this is they did that. They killed and killed and killed and killed without any backlash from Rome whatsoever. Never a note in history that says, what are you doing? Never knock it off. None of that, right? So King Herod, or the, the, the king of this providence, had kind of a lot of unilateral authority that was given under Caesar, right? Next interesting note about Rome is, other than modern North Korea, it had the highest percentage of slave in any country in the world. About 45% of ancient Rome, their whole population, were slaves, and even a tax rate that rivaled taxes in California, which is unbelievable. They had gas taxes that are even higher. It's crazy. Now, I'm going to kind of click pause for a second. I want to go back just a bit to bring us to where you need to be to go to Romans 13. Romans 12. If you were here or if you weren't, let me give you a quick recap. Romans 12 is all about our relationship to God. Um, Therefore, brothers and sisters, if you have God's mercies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is holy, acceptable, and pleasing to God. Therefore, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing your mind so you can test and approve of God's perfect pleading perfect will is, right? It's our relationship to God, right? Like, what is, what is that supposed to look like, right? What are our responsibilities to God now? Now, Romans 13 takes a change. It's our relationship to the government, and what is your responsibility as a follower of Jesus Christ to the government in which you were born under or now live under, all right? So I need you to keep that in the framework of your mind. Go with me to Romans chapter 13, verse 1. It says this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and that those exist have been instituted by God. I'm going to give you five things about this first, uh, first verse. Number one, the Bible tells us, and this verse gives us language to see, all authority, 
all authority has been given from God, which means that God is a source of all authority. Number two, there are four types of authorities other than God that all will eventually be held accountable to and will kneel to the authority that is God. Number one, and you can probably see this pretty easily, government over citizens. Two, churches over believers. Three, parents over kids. And four, bosses over employees. Right? Those are the four authorities that exist in the ether that have been given by God. So here's the question. What authorities are you in? What places of authority are you in in your life? Everyone has some place of authority, right? So for me, right, um, um, I am a father, um, I am a husband, I am a pastor uh, as well. Those are the roles of authority that I operate in. But another question, and maybe even more important, and we talked about this in the dating series, what authority are you under? In other words, who gets to tell you no? You need to have people in your life that can tell you no. Remember the whole dating thing I talked about? I said that I, did, I, I knew I was going to be ready to propose to, now my wife, obviously, when these three individuals in my life gave me their blessing. And if they said no, one of them was my counselor who I was paying. <laughs> and if I, was, I said, hey, I'm really thinking about proposing, and I said I was not going to lead myself by myself, do you think I'm already, I'm ready for that emotionally, relationally, and spiritually? And if he was going to say no, I was going to have faith and trust that he saw something in me that I did not see. Do you have those types of people in your life? Whose authority are you under? I'll give you mine. So I have counselors and things like that. Um, I have the pastors, the executive team of our church, and then I have the elders. I'm accountable to the elders of our church, right? Number three, um, our natural default, you need to understand, is to rebel against authority. So as I read the text, you're going to do exactly what I did. You're going to want to box your pillow or something like that, right? Because you're like, I don't want to kneel to Joe Biden or whoever, right? Like Gavin, you know, whatever it is, right? Like, nah, dude, like, you know. <laughs> and, and everything in me wants to rebel against this authority, right? especially during the times of COVID, you know, they put your mask on. I'm like, <coughs> no, I'm kidding. I wasn't like that. But I didn't want to wear a mask as I walked into whatever it was. I didn't want to do any of that type of stuff, right? Number four, the government is God's servant. God has a purpose and is using it for a purpose, even if the people running the government aren't submitting to God. That's the hardest one for me to understand. Number five, we are to submit to the government until submitting to the government requires us to stop submitting to God. This is maybe the most important thing I'm going to say tonight. When following the law of our land requires us to break the laws of our God, we appeal and fire, uh, follow the higher moral law that is which is God's. I'm going to say this one more time. When following the law of our land requires us to break the laws of our God, we appeal and follow the higher law, which is the word of God. If you have any questions about that, shoot me a text. But when, when does that, in fact, I think I wrote that on your questions that you guys can talk about. Um, go with me to verse, tap, verse two. It says this. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and their authority, uh, oh yeah, and those who resist will incur judgment. So really in connection to our, our last point, um, the idea is here, we submit to the government authorities because they garner their authority from God. And again, I'm gonna say this again, if the government tells us to do something that God forbids or is in violation of our faith, we remain obedient to the supreme authority, that's God. I'll give you something that's happening in the 21st world, 21st century, and especially in the 20th century. In about the 80s or so, there was something called the One China uh, Kid Policy, right? One China Policy um, has to do with Taiwan, but One China Kid Policy had to do with the fact that they just wanted to have one kid, and they were worried about um, famine and things like that. And so it, would, it was illegal to have more than one kid, and if you had more than one kid, you had to abort it. As a believer, would that be something that you would be able to engage with? And the answer to that question is no. You would not be able to abort your child because there's a government law that mandates the killing of that child because a fear of famine, drought, whatever it may be, right? So that's, that's a case in which believers in China had to make a case. I, or can I go with, like, am I going to follow the law of our land or follow the higher moral law, that what comes from God? And they chose, well, hopefully, a large percentage of them chose this one, right? Uh, verse 3 says this, 
For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Here's the purpose of the government. Biblically, the framework for government is this, to restrain evil and to reward good. The government, when operating as it should from its God-given design, not all governments have done this, and this, this is the way that governments ideally should operate. They are to restrain evil and to reward good. And the idea that permeates Scripture really is this, that government can be, is a blessing from God, the, 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 the order, law and order, all of that, right? And the idea here is that governments are better than anarchy, than just craziness, right, when there's no law and order. You guys remember like over COVID, um, or I think it was during uh, the riots around um, the country, um, like somewhere in Washington, they made the state of Chaz. You guys remember that? Have you know anything about that? And it was like the, the free land of Chaz, or Chad, or Chaz, I don't remember what it was. And um, it was like they were declaring uh, and separating um, the union, like, you know, like succeeding the union. And it was going to be this, like, it's kind of crazy, right? And the chaos and crime rate and murder rate skyrocketed in these locations, right? And that's because even a government that you may not like is still better than complete anarchy. And that, that's the point that's being talked about here. But um, Paul gives us another idea here, and that's that Christians are actually supposed to be probably the very best citizens of a country. Even though that we are loyal to, to God and God alone, um, Christians, the idea here is, are supposed to be good citizens, supposed to be honest, right? They're supposed to uh, give no troubles to the state. They're supposed to pay their taxes. We'll find out in a moment. And most importantly, they are to pray for their state um, and, and, and federal, in our, in our case, uh, leaders, right? Which, I'll be honest with you, is not something I do often. Never, like, in fact, I'll be honest with you, I don't think I've ever once prayed for our president. Ever. I've never prayed for Gavin Newsom. Ever. And I was kind of like, I'm pretty good at complaining about certain policies and like, what are they doing, this, that, and the other thing. But never once have I had a heart to go like, God, would you give them wisdom? God, would you break their heart for what breaks yours? Would you give them a policy to deal with, insert, the border, homelessness, foreign aid, whatever it is, all above my head and I don't know the policies of any of that type of stuff, right? Would you give them a good uh, taxation policy? Whatever it is, right? The idea here is that we are supposed to be good citizens who pray for our, whoever the ruler is, right? Let me give you uh, an example of um, how our ancient ancestors who were followers of Jesus did this as a great job. Go with me um, way back in time to 100 or so AD. Let's do about 100 years after the birth of, of Christ, right? So it's about 100, 110 or so AD. Trajan was the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time, and every different emperor had different rules about emperor worship. Trajan, however, um, he specifically liked being worshipped, so he implemented a rule that everyone is to worship him like a god. Now, this move was really more political. He didn't actually see himself as a god. However, he knew that if people worshipped him as god, um, they would be swearing allegiance to the government, and that would be good for a plethora of things, taxation, a bunch of things. So under Trajan, you can imagine persecutions really broke out against Christians because, like we learned, they wouldn't, they wouldn't swear allegiance to anyone else, right? So there was a governor whose name was Pliny the Younger, and he was the governor of a province, and now is what's known as Turkey. And uh, one day, right, the mailman, he comes by and gives Pliny a letter from the emperor. And to round up all of the Christians, because they are evil, they lie, they steal, whatever it is, and they're dangerous now to the empire, right? So here's what's interesting is um, I found the letters, and I was reading them this last week. There are letters that go back from Trajan and Pliny the Younger talking about Christians. And Pliny has rounded a tons of them up, and Pliny has this. He says, we have tortured some of them, put others in jail. What are we supposed to do with these people called, quote, Christians? Now, in these exchanges, and I'm not going to read them all to you, but in these exchanges, you can see why Pliny has a dilemma on how to handle the situation with the Christians, because in his letter, he describes what he's seeing with the Christians, and then he sends it to the emperor. And so Pliny is basically like going like, look, and the short of it is, look, you want me to round up all of these followers of Jesus 
And um, I got to be honest with you, as I've evaluated them, as I've interviewed them, as I've seen them interact with their people, they seem to be the very best, and he says, best citizens in the entire Roman Empire. So why are we arresting them? Quote, they are committed to being good people. See, the Christians were living a life that no one could slander so far that their reputation preceded them and eventually saved them. This is a government atheistic, wouldn't have been atheist, but he wouldn't have believed in, in, in Jesus, um, vouching for them because he sees them as good people and good citizens. This is actually the charge for your life and mine. Let us be good people and good citizens is what Paul's saying. Go with me to verse four. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the, quote, sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So you're saying, all right, hold up, Matt. This government that doesn't really seem godly is God's servant, and I'm supposed to obey them. And so you're thinking, okay, well, maybe Paul. Paul didn't know. There's no way Paul knew how bad the government that we're in is. There's no way. Let me tell you a little bit more about the government that Paul was under. When Paul penned the book of Romans, there was a man named Caesar Nero who was currently in charge. This is the same man, by the way, who would eventually order his own beheading. He would, he would be literally behead Paul. Now, history teaches us that Nero burned the city of Rome down um, in 64 AD, July 18th, I believe. And uh, he burned the entire city of, of Rome down, and history tells us that he watched this from a tower, sipping and singing. Have you guys seen that meme by Leonardo DiCaprio, where he's like, you know, with the champagne, he's like, that's, the, that's, that's literally the, like what I get of like, Nero, just watching it singing as the city is burning at night, right? And as the story goes, Nero sent out uh, men to ignite the city, and Nero was specifically motivated to destroy the city so he'd be able to bypass the Senate and rebuild the entire Roman city in his own image, erecting um, images of him everywhere throughout the city. And so he then blamed the Christians and used the Christians as a scapegoat so he could eventually torture and get rid of them. Now, also a weird fact about um, Nero was he believed that he was like one of the best, like, he was like really good at racing horses. And supposedly he sucked, but no one could tell him that because he was crazy and he'd kill everybody. And so he had this whole like horse, tr like, horse track built um, where he would race his chariot. And he wanted to do it not just during the day. He really wanted to race his horses at night as well. There's a problem. Well, Thomas Edison, he wasn't around yet, obviously. And so the whole kite and light bulb didn't happen. LED technology didn't exist. So he thought, I got it. Let's round up these Christians. Let's put poles all around the track and let's impale Christians and tie a rope over it so they can be, and let's dip them in tar alive, and then let's ignite their bodies so that I can race at night, because their bodies and their flames will light up the track so I can race my horses at night. This is the government Paul is talking about submitting to and being subject to. I think it's easy to see that his government sucked, <laughs> was way worse than ours is, and if he could submit to his government, what do you think he's asking you and I to do of our government, right? Verse five and six. Therefore, one must be in subjugation, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Highlight that, we're coming back to that. For because of this, you also, grittingly, pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attempting to this very thing. Now, I know we don't like this. I don't. <laughs> but it's also a kind of crazy thing about, the, like, he's kind of saying, like, the people who, like, work at the IRS, like, are kind of like ministers in God's name right? Like, that's kind of like, that's weird, but it's in the text, right? Verse 7, pay to all what is owed, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. I want you to look at it. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let me just give you two things before I kind of wrap this up and get you guys in groups to talk about it. Number one, government is to be supported through our taxes. 
and we are willingly to give our taxes, not try to hide our taxes or not pay taxes, whatever it is, right? Governments rightfully have a power granted from God to enable them to perform certain actions, right? Protecting, securing, and providing various common services through the power of collecting taxes, right? Now, you may not uh, like the amount of taxes the government takes from us, but you can't at least object to the idea of taxation itself. Number two, government is to be respected because it's an institution created by God and given to us by God for a purpose. Here's the conscious part of what he's talking about. Go with me to verse five again. Therefore, one must be in subjugation, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. I'm sure you heard of the man um, who wrote to the IRS said this, a few years ago, I cheated on my income taxes. My conscience has been troubling me ever since, and I haven't been able to sleep. So enclosed, I have a check for $50. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. I think it's a hilarious story. But on a more serious note, right? What Paul's talking about here is that you and I are to have actually respect for our government, right? And that governments have the right to do a handful of things. Number one, maintain armies, police forces, and even take life and capital punishment for certain crimes, grievous crimes, right? All with the recognition that, yes, these powers can be abused and have historically been abused. But it's that the reality that the government that we are currently under, for whatever the purpose is, good or bad, God has given and he's ordained certain people to be in leadership, which is crazy to think about, right? Because some of these people that are currently in our government have the most unbiblical and ungodly ideologies and worldviews, and yet God has positioned these individuals to be there for a specific purpose. I have no idea what that purpose is. I don't see things from his vantage point, but that's the reality around it. And so here's how I guess I want to end this. As I was thinking, God, what would I, okay, this is like, this is not like a, yay, See you guys next week. You know, like, how do you end this, right? Like, pay your taxes. Cool, that's a good message. It sounds like I work for the IRS. By the way, I'm not getting a tax break by giving you a sermon. That'd be great, but that's not happening. Um, I guess here's kind of the way I, I thought about this. If the, if the Bible says, in, it ends here, it says to respect and honor the government here. And I was just thinking about the fact that we can be here right now talking about Jesus, right? And that we have the freedom of religion and freedom to move around. Years ago, I got the opportunity to go to India, and um, we were sitting in a, uh, in a house, and um, there was freedom of religion, but I got lunch with a mentor this last week, and he's on the board of a, a really large mission um, organization to India. And uh, they had six million conversions to Christ last year. And he says that all of the churches have had to go underground now. Now, I went five years ago. Right? And in just five years, the freedom of religion has completely evaporated in India. Places like China, obviously places like North Korea, places like Iran, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Afghanistan, right? where you can't do what we're doing right now with the same type of freedom. That we can be sitting in a building, not targeted by some missile or government force, preaching and proclaiming the, 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 the mission, the message of Jesus Christ without fear from our government. Right? That we have that type of freedom here. This is not the government that Paul and Jesus grew up with. In fact, this would be the government that they would have prayed for, and we get to live in it, right? So I guess here's how I want to end this, is that number one, we need to be grateful, and two, thank a veteran for keeping our freedom. Thank a police officer for securing our way of life. And I know this is crazy and absolutely maybe absurd, but even be thankful that we get to pay taxes to fund the freest country that there's ever existed in human history. And that God had allowed you and I to live in this time, in this country, to experience these freedoms. That's what I'm thankful for. Let me pray for you guys, and then I'll get you guys into your guys' groups to talk about that for 20 or so minutes. Lord, we thank you that 
we get to live in America, and we do pray for our leaders, God, that you would give them the insight needed to help govern us well. Um, just like Solomon prayed um, many, many years ago, Father, for the wisdom and guidance needed to effectively lead the country, God, that you would place them in position of authority over. We pray for our leaders the same. God, would you speak to their hearts, Lord God? Would you, would you continue to break their hearts, God, for what breaks yours? And God, would you steer them, God, towards righteousness? Father, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.